Welcome to the Movies on the Brain podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brian C. Wood. With me this evening is my good friend and the heartbreak kid of podcasts. <laughs> Chambers. Welcome to another weird, wild, and wacky week in the world of genre movie news that included L.A. Night ripping off The Rock and Stone Cold in the same evening. Uh, so, Chad, the box office world has been taken by storm. It's been covered in pink and filled with lo- and covered in lots of glitter. You have now seen the Barbie and the Oppenheimer oh, and the oh, Turtles. I sti- I've still not seen the Oppenheimer. You have still not seen the Oppenheimer. I That's unfortunate. I, yeah. I made that sacrifice for us three times already. So I mean, it's the price of having people in your life who are like, I need to see this movie. Will you go see it with me? And I'm like, you know what? Sure. So like, it's now my second most watched Nolan movie next to Interstellar, which I've watched the shit out of basically just because it's his most uh, heartfelt before we get here. I think I've only, I think I saw Interstellar with you. And I think that's the only time I've ever seen it. Uh, but I'm I, I'm hoping to rectify. Well, I will rectify the Oppenheimer next week because uh, people go to school and I can go and sneak out for three hours and not be missed. Uh, good thing they don't listen to this, so they don't know. But yeah, uh, next week I'll finally see this uh, three-hour, uh, I guess, masterpiece. I don't know. We'll find out. Um, it will be a very interesting and enjoyable trip for you. Uh, it's it's very talky and very dense, but it's Nolan with an actual like clear and concise point to make which is something that say i don't know the dark knight rises doesn't have (laughs) that's another one i haven't seen that one it's really been it's been at least it's been at least four years because i know but i've been out of baton rouge for almost three years i'm pretty sure i hadn't watched it a year before at least a year before that so probably like four or five years since i've seen that one and i've watched begins in the dark knight like within the last year and I'll probably watch them again before the year's out. And I still don't know if I'll watch Rises. Yeah, I mean, that Rises is just so, so over the top. Um, you know, it just, it's so many different things. And that's kind of its biggest issue. Like, there's this this odd pseudo-sexual relationship between Bane and Talia al Ghul. There's this, you know, Occupy Wall Street thing. There's the fact that Batman is a supporting character in his own movie. There's this whole Alfred and uh, and Bruce Wayne dynamic with Catwoman in in France at the end. There's the whole Joseph Gordon-Levitt playing Robin thing. Like, there's I, a whole lot there, and none of it really works. And again, your Batman movie includes Batman paralyzed in the Lazarus pit for an hour at least of his three hour of his two hour movie. Is it an hour? Feels like it. Like just thinking of just thinking about it, feel I thought it'd be like thirty minutes. But again, I haven't watched it in years, so you you could enti- be entirely correct. Which would mean that Batman's only in the movie for probably about twenty minutes. He's not there at the beginning; he's there at the end. But that's only like the second time we see him is like Batman, second or third time. So uh, proper Batman is only in the movie for for about twenty minutes if he's paralyzed for an hour. And then there's the audio mixing issues with Rises. So, yeah, I'm, I I think I will watch it again this year just to kind of see. And actually, I probably will because I want to watch. Uh, I want to try to watch all of Nolan's movies. There are not that many of them, um, but I, there are fewer Nolan movies than there are Tarantino movies, I believe. At this point, I think they're the, both somewhere. I think they're both somewhere around like 
uh, this will be Tarantino's tenth. Yeah. Uh, so um, I think Nolan uh, has thirteen. I want to say, starting with starting with it, starting with the following, and then going from there. Let's see if I can. I want to get to his filmography. So it's the yeah, following: Memento, Insomnia. So I'm not gonna read about one, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Oppenheimer's twelve, and I think I've seen. Yes. Uh, see, I've seen one, two, three, four, five, six. I've seen seven of them. I haven't seen the first three and Dunkirk and Oppenheimer. Yeah, and Dunkirk and Oppenheimer are kind of of a piece, and so it would be helpful to watch because they're two different aspects of World War Two. And and Dunkirk is a, right. and, and Dunkirk is a specifically British thing. Like it is a thing that is deeply important and and reflective for the British people. And being that Nolan is a Brit, like that kind of makes sense. The kind of attention to detail and heart and 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 soul he puts into that story. Uh, whereas Oppenheimer is just a it is a a symphony of sound and fury with a point. Um, Nolan is making a statement about government and about the power that governments have. And the idea of what is ownership is something that is inherent in this film. It's, it's a very open topic. And I kept, I kept thinking through my third viewing of the film, it was like, I couldn't help but think of, you know, the writers <laughs> who are on strike because there's the scene in the movie where the father of the atomic bomb and the father of the H bomb are talking about how, you know, it would Japan surrender if they knew a bomb was coming and, and they're having this conversation. And then he's like, you know, I'm not really sure that our technology should be used this way. And Oppenheimer is very much like, well, you know, it was our job to build it. We don't get a say in how they use it. And this is right as they're loading up the bombs onto a truck, seeing, you know, going, going away, see you later. And the general who was in charge of the project looks at Oppenheimer and says, I'll call you sometime. We'll catch up. It'll be fine. And gets in the car and never be seen again. <laughs> and it, it's just, it paints this image of the federal government basically taking ownership of a science, uh, ownership of something that is not theirs misappropriating science for their own reasons and not cre accrediting or value value uh, either accrediting or valuing the creators in the process and um that was something that struck me very much was like this idea that like the federal government was basically a pimp they <laughs> they paid the scientists the scientists created the thing that they needed under great pressure and great demands and then once the bomb went off, the federal government zipped back up its pants, said thank you, left the money on the table, and left. <laughs> and then and then shot their load all over Japan. And, you know, it was just, it felt very icky and very unsettling. And I think that was the point Nolan was trying to make. And again, it just made me think of writers like Marcus and McFeely and, and others who write these big massive opuses and you know go off and, and and I thought immediately of the the people who take passes on scripts who you never get 
never get credit. They never mm-hmm. get an accredited screen, a screenwriting credit for their work, but their work greatly helps a draft or two of a screenplay that eventually gets made. And just thinking about all the creative hands that are made and that, that are involved in putting together a film. And then that film gets handed off to a studio to do whatever they want with. Studio can, as we've seen lately, can decide just to shelve it and never show it to anybody and never give any of the directors or writers or producers or, or craftspeople any credit for it or payment for it, just washing it, right, washing it away from existence because it's their property and they get to write it off if they want to. And it just, that, that was a thematic element that kind of resonated with me in Oppenheimer that I haven't really seen a whole lot of people pick up on. Just what I know about the story, that sounds uh, like a very plausible reading. I will go in. I'll probably go in kind of looking for that. But uh, using the the analogy of a pimp to describe the government is uh, quite humorous because it is not the first time I've heard that analogy be made. And, you know, it's the government. So oftentimes, if they want to play that role, they can play that role. So I'm I'm not shocked for somebody... Uh, that's not from here to want to uh, like convey that message about this particular government uh, and 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 the things that they've done and how transactional it is and you know coming out coming that this is Nolan and how he uh, this is coming like fresh off of his troubles with Warner Brothers because this is why it's not a Warner Brothers movie I think that kind of tracks because he. I think he does have something to say about, um, you know, uh, those in charge that just kind of don't don't intellectually do anything, but reap all the benefits from things. Uh, I think he would. I think he would be right to say have that to say when he was making this movie. Well, I mean, let us not forget that the reason that Warner's does not have this, and the reason Warner's originally put Barbie on the same weekend was to be a giant fu to Christopher Nolan for taking his ball and going going somewhere else after the whole tenant situation. Now, of course, the tenant situation was like three regimes ago at this point for for WB. Yeah, for real. But but like you have to remember that he was being staunch about putting his movie in movie theaters at the early stages of the pandemic. We're talking right. July of 2020 when most places were either just coming out of lockdown or just starting to regroup. And he was demanding that every theater that was open play tenants seven times a day for yeah. like the three people who were there. <laughs> and Warners was like, no, bro, like we can put it on Max or hell, we can hold it and put it out in a couple of years or a year and a half when things are better or it'll make us more money. And he was like, nope, this will drive people to the theater. This will get people out and mask." to go sit in a darkened room with strangers and breathe bad air and, you know, we'll make money. And it turned out that, you know, Warner brothers was right. <laughs> but and see, and, and that's, see that kind of thing. It's when people make the arguments uh, against uh, these big money corporations, they say all the bad things, but this is one of those times where their corporate greed was very much in line with not only the audience, but like, the public good. No, your ashes should not be in the theaters. Let's not do this, Christopher Nolan. Uh, and I, I, I still have a sour taste in my mouth from from his insistence on putting it in the theaters from that experience. Um, because I, I mean, 
I don't like siding with the big corporations. The big corporation was right this time. And it, it bore out that they were right. And But he was, it felt to me he was smelling his own supply. Like, I am the great Christopher Nolan. And I want to release this movie. And I know what is best for theaters because I am this great auteur. And I know enough people that think of him as a great auteur that I was like, just shut up. It goes to the down. Don't put the movie out. People are People are still sick. They're not trying to go to the theaters. It's still, it's just now starting to come back. And we still don't know exactly the, like, people can't make accurate predictions because everything is still volatile. It's three years later. He, so I'm not going to go off too much more on my diatribe on Chris Nolan, but he was wrong that time. Um, but I do think that, you know, off of your reading from it, I do think that would be, that would be a story he would be interested in telling and putting into this. Uh, because of his own experience. Yeah, and the thing is, like, not only was the corporation right, it was what was best for Nolan. Yeah. Because more more people have had to discover Tenant on a small screen or on a TV screen through a streaming service or through renting it through VOD than ever did in the theater. Like, the number of people who've actually seen Tenant in a theater is a lot smaller than it would have been if he'd waited 20 months or 18 months. And so, like, but the idea of ownership and authenticity and who owns uh, a created thing is a very interesting dynamic because you have so much going on with our tours, with people like Scorsese, who cannot get funding. Like, he cannot get funding from a Warner Brothers. He can't get funding from a a, a Disney or a, a, a Paramount. He can't get fun funding. Because, A, he wants to spend 200 to $300 million, not on any Ann Jones movie, but on something like The Irishman, okay? But, B, because they don't want to make those kinds of films. Oh. Like, again, Killers of the Flower Moon may end up in the same Oscar conversation as Barbie and Oppenheimer, and maybe competing in some of the same categories as uh, Bradley Cooper's uh, uh, docu- uh, biopic of... Uh, Burn, Leonard Bernstein may also be in that conversation. Oh yeah, forget about that. If that comes, if that comes out this year, but um, like that—that's all that kind of movie about Native Americans and oil and the FBI and all those things at two hundred million dollars, let's just say, doesn't get greenlit by any studio. No, Apple, Apple will very gladly write you the check for it because they need content for HB for for Apple Plus which is struggling to survive even though they have millions of subscribers because of the iPhones and the Apple accounts. So, I mean, it just, I can see how he's very much wanting to, to address the idea that there are people out there who are creating art and having that art um, taken away and mutilated beyond recognition from what the original intent was. Yeah. It's just a little overwrought because, you know, this guy's like going from being the father of the atomic bomb to being like arms control, NATO, the United Nations, you know, arms treaties, yay, arms treaties. And and everybody in the industrial war complex is like, get that pussy bitch out of here. <laughs> like literally there's a scene in Oppenheimer where that's basically what Truman tells him. Don't let that pussy back in here. Don't let that crybaby back in here because he tells true because he tells Truman that he has blood on his hand. and and Truman hands him a, a, a Kleenex and tells him to 
you know, wipe wipe it away. Yes, indeed. Yeah. But like that's an extreme, like you know, pendulum swing, and it it only works because you see the dramatic journey that he goes on throughout the film that leads you to authentically believe that he would come to this this change of heart. Well, this is all made me like very curious, uh, even more curious uh, about the movie. So I'm really eager to see it and see what my read on it is. Um, it. I'll be honest, like when uh, I knew I was going to see it, but because of my slow, slow burning kind of uh, disdain, not it's not really disdain, but, you know, the sour taste of Christopher Nolan, I was like, I kind of wanted this one to suck. I knew it wouldn't, but kind of wanted to. But uh, it doesn't seem like that. It seems like he's made a three hour uh, movie that people actually want to see. Well, it what helps is that it it's like Dunkirk moves because Dunkirk is like under like right at two hours and it's structured in a way that people can really get and understand. This is like wonderfully paced and structured because, yeah, you have two separate things going on and you're going back and forth on things. But like it's getting to who Oppenheimer is, is the first hour. Second hour is building bomb and blowing up bomb. And then third hour is reaction to blowing up bomb and change of heart. And, you know, I am the destroyer of worlds. And so, like, that's a structure that people can get behind. It's not something like Tenet, where you're time jumping and looping and, okay, where am I at now? You know, that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's also just an easy watch because it's not something that takes a lot of, like eyeballs you know it, it's it's a lot of dialogue and so you are literally just listening to people talk a whole lot and you're building up to the bomb which is just an expert use of sound design the yeah. whole movie the whole movie really to me oppenheimer should be up for for best sound design because that without the sound design that movie does not work just as dunkirk does not work without dinkins cinematography and the editing i keep forgetting you know i know it's a i know it's a movie about the bomb, but and I've heard people talk about the bomb, but I forget there's a bomb, and I know there's a bomb that goes off, and I I, I do want to see it, but it's not what I'm thinking about when I think about going into this movie. Well, that's the thing. Under normal circumstances, when you go and you watch something like Fat Man, Little Boy, which is about the exact same story, you're not focused on you're focused on okay, when's the bomb going off? When is the bomb going off? Here, like because of the way it's been structured and the reaction to the film through word of mouth, it's less been about going in looking for the bomb or waiting for the bomb test and more about, oh, this famous person has a, has a uh, supporting role that's really good or this famous person has a supporting role that's really good or this person that I used to know when they were a kid is now you know really good in this role. And that's supporting these, this, these two really prominent um performances and so it becomes less about spectacle and waiting for the spectacle because the spectacle is the performances and those are what draw you in to the point where you build and build and build to that bombing and then to that test and then once the test is over then it really just hammers home with sound design and imagery uh what comes after that is an interesting way yeah that's an interesting way to think about it well, the other thing too, I want to get get make make relative uh, 
The other thing that I want to make plain is that under no circumstances is this movie glorifying Robert Oppenheimer. This movie presents him as a very flawed individual with very flawed uh, beliefs and as a person who makes mistakes, both morally and ethically at times. So I saw a lot of discourse online about when the Napoleon trailer dropped about this idea of, you know, glorifying horrible figures in history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the whole purpose of Oppenheimer is to say this man willingly did this. He wanted the the glory and the fame and the notoriety of it. And then he realized what it could do. And then he realized who he was giving it to. And he realized what they might do with it. And he was like remorseful and spent the rest of his life trying to undo the thing that he did. And that, you know, he 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 you know, he's not a martyr. He's not a holy person. He's someone who committed, you know, who committed an act. And you either and you get the full scope of that in the movie. So it's not like it's propping Oppenheimer up on this pedestal talking about how morally great he was. It's it's very much a, a character study in that examination aspect. Uh, the other uh, the other thing I wanted to, to put out there from my perspective anyway, is um, I've heard a lot of complaints that, A, we don't see Nagasaki or Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. We only see the testing that was done at in New Mexico at the time. You know, you can ask our good friend Indiana Jones about that. He, you know, he got up close and personal to it. But, um, like, there are films that have been done by Japanese filmmakers, Japanese writers, and produced with subtitled uh, with subtitles that delve into the droppings of the bombs, the Japanese lead up to those bombs, the Japanese reaction to the bombs, and the death toll, the slow, agonizing, painful death toll that took place after the bomb dropped. There are films from the Japanese perspective that show that side of the story and show the way that they view. Oppenheimer, and more importantly, the way they view the U.S. in the immediate aftermath, because not only were we, you know, going to drop a bomb on Hiroshima and not in Nagasaki, but we also were imprisoning of Japanese Americans in our own version of prison camps just for being Japanese. So um, there are plenty of stories from the Japanese perspective on those events, and I would encourage anybody who is interested by this subject matter, who wants to broaden their perspective on world events and history to seek out those films. They're fairly easy to access through YouTube and through the Criterion channel. And just just to view those and get a better understanding and appreciation for the event and realize that it's not just a myopic, Americanized view of things. I have nothing else to add to that. That sounds, yeah. Well, I mean, I just, I saw a lot of people complaining about it. And I was like, what are we, like, of course this isn't glorifying. Of course this isn't the America, the America, the America occasion of the event. It's just portraying what the events and how they happen from one side. But that's because Oppenheimer was working for that side. And Oppenheimer is the subject of the film. And to a certain extent, Einstein is the subject of the film. Because it was his theories that, you know, they built upon to create the bomb. So, um, you know, it, it's it's interesting to me. And I really hope that people understand that there are 
Japanese films. And if you do want to broaden your horizons and perspectives, you can certainly check those out. And maybe it'll give you a better context for the event as a whole. Don't just take Nolan's word for it. But, okay, I do want to say, um, I don't think it would have been, granted, Nolan's not American, but I don't think it would have been in good taste to, to show, like, you can't show them dropping a bomb in Japan and anything around that. So I do think fo- you, this is a story focusing on one side from the creation to the employment. Um, I So I like I can I hear people talking like saying, you know, we know the ultimate outcome and they're like no Japanese people represented in this movie. I hear them saying that. However, in this context, I don't think you can do it unless you're willing to show the bomb dropping and the aftermath over there. But that's not what this movie's about. So there's that point. And I just don't think it's in good taste to show, like, for an American film, by all intents and purposes, to show the bombing of Japan. So the, it's, one, you've got to go with the story to tell, and there's telling this particular story. And that has, I mean, it has something to do with Japan, but not in the sense where you would include that viewpoint on this. And then you have to think about all of the optics and everything surrounding what actually happened and where this movie is coming from. So I think this is the best you're going to get. And I think you're what you're saying about, you know, there are Japanese movies that deal with it. And I think that is a better place to go. Oh, uh, I maybe like if this were, if this were a movie, like uh, what, what, what did East would do the, about uh, Hiroshima, the, the band, not band of brothers, the uh, flag of our fathers or whatever it was. He did that one. Yeah. I mean, like, if this were a movie that was simply about Truman and the Emperor in Japan and the Allied forces versus the Pacific Theater and everything that was going on with that and drawing a parallel between the way the two leaders conducted themselves in the war and the decision, then yes, I could see some version of the bomb dropping and the aftermath of it being critical to the understanding of the actual event. But not when we're talking about a person who never sets foot on the Japanese soil, you know, who builds the thing that destroys them. And that's why Nolan has the whole conversation in the film with him and Truman, where Truman's like, they ain't going to eat the people in Japan. They not mad at the person built the bomb. They mad at me for dropping the bomb. And I'm the one that will be remembered. And, you know, that that whole thing, which is more which is more appropriate to how the how what the film is about than you know showing the actual bombing and the radiation and the skin falling off of people and all of the things. Yeah, that's not what this movie is. No, and there are plenty of books and plenty of movies from the Japanese perspective about that that again I would just encourage people to seek out and broaden their horizons. But I also want to talk for a second here about Robert Downey Jr. and I don't understand how it happened. But like from 2008 in this in the 16 years from 2008 to 2024, it's almost 2024. Um, it seems like people forgot that Robert Downey Jr. was an Academy Award winning actor. Like I get that like The Judge is a film that no one but me saw. And for good reason, I still can't get the image of of uh, of naked uh, Robert Duvall out of my head. Um, wrinkly old Robert Duvall in the shower with Robert Downey Jr. I just can't get that, haven't been able to get that out of my head. And I get that Doolittle was a thing and he had his hand up a dragon's rear end. But like, 
that doesn't mean that the guy has doesn't have skills and has demonstrated those skills multiple times before Sherlock Holmes and in Iron Man and after. Um, right. The judge, the judge, is still a very good performance from him. If even if no one really saw it, so to act surprised that Downey could carry a meaty acting role, which is essentially a co-lead in the movie, is shouldn't be surprising to anybody. I don't understand why it would be. Man has Oscar nominations. <laughs> I mean, for like younger people, younger than us, I can maybe I can kind of see it because if you're quite frankly, if you're younger than us, uh, you're not, you didn't see Chaplin more than likely. Chaplin came out in like 91, 92. 92. Uh, yeah. So it's 31 years. Uh, anybody younger than us? They yeah. That's, it. that's the same. Uh, that's the same argument I made to a friend about, he was upset that not a lot of people knew who Rita Perlman was going into Barbie. And I'm like, <laughs> And I'm like, you got to remember, Cheers went off the air in the spring of 1992 before most of these people were even born or at least were pop, pop, pop culturally aware. Yep. So, like, you do have to factor that in that there would they wouldn't really have a context for Rhea Perlman outside of Matilda. Yeah. And that's what I, that's what I was thinking. I was like, what's the last thing? What's the most relevant thing she's been in outside of Cheers? And yeah, Matilda's the only thing that comes to mind, even though, I mean, you and I know her, but. It's the same kind of thing. Uh, and, I mean, talking about Chaplin, I knew he was nominated for an award for Chaplin. Uh, I knew it way back when. I didn't actually see Chaplin. It's probably been close to 10 years now, but 10 years now. I was in my 30s when I saw Chaplin the first time. So a lot of I know a lot of people that know him as Iron Man didn't see him in Chaplin. And actually, he was Iron Man for so long, I think a lot of people just forgot everything else like they forgot everything about robbie Downey jr before 2008 which is incredible because robert johnny jr was a um he had he had a life and and while he was a oscar nominated actor he also did some very stupid things that landed him in jail and landed him like he lost jobs uh like he he tells the story and everybody kind of knows the story it was hard for him to get insured to be Iron Man they had to fight for that to happen because of his track record before. So it, it's it's really weird that like Iron Man revitalized his career, but it, at the same time, like that fifteen year chunk just kind of like it it like mind wiped everybody else, everybody from everything else he's done. If you were, weren't watching a bunch of movies, well, and too, like I said, he did he did the Sherlock Holmes stuff right before. And, and during Iron Man, and he also like did Tropic Thunder. So there and and so there have been other things, but the Judge and Doolittle are the two biggest, widest releases that marketed themselves with him at the forefront in in the years that he was playing Iron Man. And so I think those are the two things people would have an op- would have had an opportunity to see him in. Again, I'm just amazed that film Twitter of all places seemingly forgot that the dude could act um my actual my first uh, my first introduction to robert Downey jr did not actually come from a movie it came from ally mcbeal and it came from boston public which was a show that he was on with jerry me uh, jerry ryan at the time um back in the late 90s early 2000s so 
uh, I didn't even, it wasn't until then that I found out about Chaplin and watched Chaplin, but, uh, but yeah, it was dude. I knew dude for the small screen, you know, not even the big screen. See, I, I'm old enough that I remember when he went to Allingsville. I didn't watch Allingsville, but I knew when he joined the cast because it was a big deal that he was joining the cast. Because I same I, same way for Boston Public. Yeah, I can't remember if he had already been in trouble once before or whatnot, but it was like you know. Oscar-nominated Robert Downey Jr., this movie star, is coming to join this TV show. He must have been in trouble once before because everybody's like, okay, he do, he, he's doing this. It's a big deal that he's doing it, but he must be doing it because he can't do anything else. Uh, but And at that point, uh, the, the one for sure Robert Downey Jr. movie that I know I'd seen by that point is Heart and Soul because my mom liked that damn movie, so I saw it a whole bunch. Uh, I may have seen him in Weird Science by this point, uh, but I mean that I just knew who he was. So uh, I don't know. There, there might be some of that too, too, because a lot of people just like they may have known who he was, but not known what they knew him from. Tropic Thunder is before Iron Man, right? They're the same year. Same Iron Man comes out May. Tropic Thunder comes out in like July. Tell of the year. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. It was because I, I, I'll never forget. The MTV Music Awards that year, I think it came out like a it came out like a month or two after Tropic Thunder and Iron Man had already come out and uh, the Tropic Thunder three were hosting the show. So they when they when he came out, they made it a big deal that he came out and, it was, and they were pretty much calling this the year of Robert Downey Jr. So, yeah, that, that everybody well knew that 2008 was his year. That was his reconnaissance. Yeah. That was it. So let's move to being Barbie people in a Barbie world with one of my favorite filmmakers being given the keys to a kingdom and making more money than anybody could ever have expected. Your thoughts, sir, on the biggest bet that uh, that Margot Robbie could ever have taken going with all of her capital from Harley Quinn, going to Warner Brothers and demanding to make this movie, securing the rights, getting a pitch deck together doing all the stuff, hiring Greta, all to get to this particular point. Your thoughts on the journey and on the movie itself? I One day I'll have to go back and look at the whole journey because I know um, this was not the first iteration of Barbie that was posted on the big screen in recent history. There's that whole thing with uh, Amy Schumer that was going to, she was going to do a Barbie movie. Uh, it got pretty far along. They didn't get to like, I don't know if they got a director, but she signed on. She was developing it for a while. Uh, with yeah, this was a train. This during the 2015, 2016 train wreck era. Yes, yes. Uh, so that's how far back this goes. So that's um, eight years now. Uh, so when when we get to the point where it's like, okay, we're not doing that. Um, um, Margot Robbie's going. I lost her name for a second. Margot Robbie's going to be Barbie. You hear that? It's like, okay, makes sense. Uh, Greta Gerwig's coming in they're going, and she's going to direct. And I think by that point, I had seen Lady Bird. So I was like, I like Lady Bird. So I was like, okay, this this is good. I've still never seen Little Women. never seen any version of Little Women. So at this point, it's kind of like a sticking point that I just don't want to see it. But I liked, I liked Lady Bird. I was like, so I was like, okay, this sounds interesting. And I just had no idea what, I, I didn't know what the movie was going to be about. 
And we fast forward to that first trailer and I saw that and I'm like, I have no idea what this movie is. And from that moment on, I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to go see it. Now I'm intrigued. Uh, so with, all, with that, going to what we got, um, particularly after you started getting more marketing and it seemed like, hey, you know, Barbie comes to the real, real world kind of thing. Until you watch the movie, it's like they're in the real world for like 20 minutes and that's it. It's, it's done. Uh, most of this is in Barbie world. And it's really just about the themes of, um, I, to me, it's about the themes of there should be, there shouldn't be like a dominant force dictating everything. And you can see it in, you see it in the real world and you see it in Barbie's world. And the you're supposed to come from that thinking both of these ways are not the way we're supposed to go. We're supposed to be more of a actually uh, inclusive and collaborative culture between men in all their different forms and women in all their different forms. And if we do that, then we can make a better world. That's to me what the theme of this movie is. Um, and I, but the way they, the way they handle it um, with most things that are entertainment and comedy, you, you don't punch, like you don't punch down to the, the, the lowest denominator of the people you're talking about. You punch up to the people that have all the power. Well, in society, the power goes to men. So they're punching men pretty much in the privates, the whole movie. You know and what I'm it pretty- reminded me of? They're, they're, I kept waiting uh, for a candy get kicked in the balls because I was thinking, I was thinking about Ghostbusters and about Paul Feig's female <laughs> the Ghostbusters have answered the call and how he got so fed up with all of the online poison in the movie about the movie that like he literally has them take take proton packs to the ball sack of the of the state bus yeah but we we didn't get that we got a lot of justification uh, i am you i am i am kin enough yeah i mean in the in the end the the people that they're punching up to they're just telling them be a better person just listen be a better person I realize where I messed up in this too. I'm taking responsibility to that. And the end is what it Ken is the end of it is like he has his own self-esteem. He's not wrapped up in in Barbie. He and and they're able to come to she's able to stop overlooking him and he's able to realize that uh being himself, but not trying to be the overarching asshole that he was through a third of this movie is the way to go. That that's it, you're you're supposed to leave out of the movie like Ken. That's if you're a dude, you're supposed to leave out the movie like Ken, unless you're an insecure little dude, and then you leave out the movie thinking that the Kens had it right. So to me, I thought the I the message could was heavy handed at some points, but I think it deserved it needed to be heavy handed at some points, and because of the dominant class, if it was overly heavy handed, well. Y'all don't get, y'all don't get it so much. You can take it for this, and it worked for every. It worked for everything they were trying to tell. So I came away enjoying the movie, getting the message, getting what the message was supposed to be, but full well knowing that there were going to be people that probably never saw the movie, probably never will see the movie, that were going to be upset. And boy, were they! And boy, are they still? Because it just keeps making money and. Everything they've said about it is turning out to be wrong. Looking at you, Ben Shapiro. Looking at you. Even though he went to the damn movie dressed like him. So here's my thing. 
the movie is about identity and identity not in gender, identity not in race, identity not in power, because they show all different shapes, sizes, and colors of Barbie. All these the movie literally begins with 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 Helen Mirren, who I'd like to know what her check was for doing the just doing the narration and saying things like, Note to filmmakers, Margot Robbie is the exact wrong person to cast if this is your objective. I love that um, note. Um like that got the second biggest uh, applause line next to uh, next to the the uh, the monologue, as we're just all going to call it from now on. Um, but like it, she really says in the beginning, all of these are Barbie, and Barbie is all of these, and so it immediately disavows yourself or the film of this notion that Barbie is only Margot Robbie and can only look like Mar- Margot Robbie and can only be blonde and blue eyed and have nice whatevers. Um, and I thought that was important, but the movie is about identity outside of looks, outside of power dynamics, outside of race, outside of anything. It's about figuring out who you are as a person, not as an occupation, not as the object of someone's affection, not in a relationship, not from anything else, but what is, who is you, who are you? And how do you discover that? And the journey that you go on to realize what that is. And Ken goes on that journey of realizing that his identity is not wrapped up in, I mean, they say it at the very beginning of the movie, Ken only has a good day if Barbie looks at it. And from there, you, you he goes on this journey where he realizes, A, there's a world outside of Barbie, and B, that he can be happy just doing beach. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't even have to do all the be a leader and change the constitution and ride in a Hummer and all these things to impress people or to act big. He just, he just wants to do beach and be good at beach. And that's all. And that's enough for Ken is to just be confident, self-assured and enjoy what he does. And that is his identity. And Barbie is identifying going through a process of emotion and how those emotions impact her and when she does begin to be sentient and be able to feel the choice to embrace those feelings instead of squashing them or putting them in a box on a shelf, but rather just embracing the feelings, the emotions, the good and the bad, and owning them and saying, you know, this is who I am. Yes, I, I feel angry. Yes, I feel tired. Yes, I feel frustrated. But I also feel happy. I also feel joy. I also feel passion. And I want to keep feeling those things. And so it is a two characters journeys, three characters really journey on accepting who they are because America Ferreira also has to accept that she's a, you know, weird little uh, golf mom. Yeah. Acceptance. Acceptance is a a good short summation of what it is. Acceptance and identity, like make, you know, no one can make you happy, but you. And, and that's the whole, that's the whole thing. Every day is a choice. And, you know, Barbie was afraid when her feet went flat because she didn't know what was going on and was afraid of what it might bring. And it brought emotion and feelings to her life. And she met that challenge and she embraced that challenge and made uh, ultimately made the choice to fully embrace it at the end of the movie. And I think those are really rich thematic themes that Greta could have explored in an A24 movie with her husband 
but chose to do it through a multi-billion dollar IP. <laughs> I mean, why, you know, if you've got this idea and you can credibly use it and make a boatload of money, I'm not mad at you. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the Amy Schumer movie would have been that much different. I think this is a better, more organized and well thought out movie. But I think Schumer was going to use the body humor, body image issue at the heart of her art film bitch, too. So it's not like it would have been a, mo- a movie that would have just, you know, promoted the next line of dolls. You know, I'm also amazingly surprised that Mattel signed off on the way Mattel is <laughs> is depicted in this movie. Kind of. But like I'm watching the movie and, you know, I'm I'm keenly aware of what they're doing. But I never do I think that, you know, never do I think of Mattel's real leadership as, as these no bozos. Even though uh um cranky old Bill Maher kind of made this that kind that kind of point today when he saw the movie and he was like, uh, you know, forty percent of Mattel's board is actually women, which is not what this movie is. So blah blah blah. Like that's not the point. No, it but the the thing that got me is the depiction of, you know, the fact that Ken's Mojo Dojo house starts selling like hotcakes. Or the fact that, you know, regular Barbie as a as a money making tool, he's against it. And then as soon as he hears it'll make money, he's like, sign us up, you know, that kind of a thing where it's like, I could totally see that being a thing. So my well, the reason I knew that this was a complete fantasy board was uh, when they're first talking to her and uh, are they talking to somebody and Ken is brought up and they're like, we don't even think about Ken. We never think about Ken. Uh, just to drive home the point that even in this boardroom full of dudes, they do not care about Ken at all. So much so that when his stuff did start selling, uh, while they were still, you know, taking the money from it, they he he was concerned that this was the way it was going. Yeah, very much, and it drives him to get to Barbie Land faster. Yeah. So uh, in. You know, within the movie where they're like, they really are portrayed as just like, you know, the classic kind of business thing of all boys, no men. Even they are not concerned with like putting men on a pedestal when it comes to their moneymaker, which is Barbie. Yeah. No one was going to mistake uh, Will Ferrell for being a member of No Ma'am. No. There's, <laughs> there's a reference about three people we'll get. So let's talk about some supporting performances here because... Obviously, there are a bunch of them here, just as in Oppenheimer, that really are going to stand out. Let's talk about Gosling and people remembering that Ryan Gosling can be funny because apparently all seven of us saw the nice guys. Yeah, people forget, and they also forget they can uh, that he can sing and stuff. Because when when we went to see it, um, I forget who was saying it, but I'm like, you do realize that he was in the Mickey Mouse Club, right? Like. This is what he's done. So, but uh, dude who did Ella, uh, dude who did La La Land can sing and dance. Imagine that. Uh, yeah, and the, yeah, that person knew that he did La La Land too, but it was still just a fit. Like La La Land didn't really mean much to him, even though they've seen it. Um, it was the, the the Mickey Mouse Club was like, oh yeah, that's right. He's been doing this since he was a kid. Yes, he has. Yes, yes, he has. Um, and that's been a long time because Ryan Gosling and I are the same age. Um, but Hey, so all of us are me, you, Britney Spears, Justin Timberlake, Christina Aguilera. 
we're all in that same ballpark. Well, uh, so all of those people you name are the exact same age. We're we're all forty one, about to be forty two. Most of us. Um, you can throw Beyonce in there too. I know all of like, yeah. It would just it just so happened that my the year I was born, like all of these monster people decided to be born too, and I just kind of remember that. But um, I didn't. So going into the movie, I didn't know what I I knew kind of what to expect from from Ken. And then the movie happened, and then halfway through the movie happened, and I'm like, oh, Ken's the bad guy. And I was thoroughly amused by that. Uh, and Gosling, but I did I would never have cast Ryan Gosling as Ken, but uh, yeah, he 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 killed this role. He was great in this in this thing. Uh, and I think I think the you know the soft villain turn is what really does it because. You know, he has to convey all these emotions and you have to buy into what he's saying as he is uh, being a complete douchebag. But we but we understand he's being a douchebag because he will all he wants is Barbie's attention and she refuses to give it to him. So uh, I I saw people saying, you know, uh, he he should get a, a Oscar now for for best supporting, which I mean, I have again, I haven't seen a whole bunch of movies this year, but but the way this year is going and you know since we might do some movies towards the end of the year why not i thought he i did think he had a standout performer so i would not be upset with that and this is also your reminder that kingsley ben Eldare, the guy from secret as is as is shang chi yep. yep. so yep. You know, those are your three of, main kins yeah they're your three main kins and uh yeah it, it's just gosling being funny and adorable and like affable is not surprising. His comedic timing has been great in any kind of comedic role. We should have gotten like five nice guys movies by now. And it's such a disappointment that we didn't all written and directed by Shane black who really yeah. should have. And instead of doing a nice guy sequel, when did a predator movie that no one saw except for, me. um, but you know, it, it's just, his comedic timing, his affableness, his charm, it, it, it all works. And I, I really think the emotional journey the character goes on and the way that he portrays that um, is going to, it should put him in the in the best supporting race, which to be honest is going to be kind of a crowded field just from Barbie and Oppenheimer. And that's before you even get to Killers of the Flower Moon or Dune or any of the rest of these that are going to come out toward the end of the year, maybe. Maybe. So the other the other person uh, that I want the other two people I wanted to comment on uh, America Ferreira, Ugly Betty, coming back to everybody's consciousness twenty years later, and reminding everybody that she can still she can still bring it. And that monologue, which she was told Meryl Streep read for this role and read for this uh, read for this monologue, and I'm like that's pretty much bullshit because there's there's no way there's Meryl no way, Street, no no way, way. Meryl Streep no way Meryl Streep pulls off this role. But it was a good motivational tool for her um, that Meryl Streep, you know, performed this monologue and killed it. So she upped her game, and and it is the biggest reaction in all three screenings I've been in have been women to that that monologue. And the movie in and of itself, with the performance that she gives, should definitely put her in the best supporting actress category come come Academy season because you know this is a very deep and meaningful role not only to the movie but to you know to barbie and and to what barbie is 
and what Barbie means. So I I truly hope she gets recognized and that that more people uh, will find her and find her work as a result. The other thing I want person I wanted to touch on is near and very dear to my heart, and that is the reminder that Michael Sarah is funny and has brilliant comedic timing and plays a great role in almost any film that he and I, I you know I'm spoiled because I got to see the dude start at like 20 when he was in Arrested Development and you know we've all followed along from Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist with Kat Dennings to um you know to uh the Scott Pilgrim versus the world to his memorable turn and this is the end um you know super bad and to see his career bloom and grow this way and to go away for a little while and then for him to come back in this role in this spot and do the things that he did was just spectacular and profound and amazing and i'm super glad that a new generation is going to discover him and discover his work and i hope that he gets a lot more of it after this yeah oh i knew he was in it and i knew he wasn't ken uh and i didn't know the history of alan until what after the movie, but I didn't expect yeah. him to be. Yeah, like, they 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 dug deep into the Mattel catalog of callbacks for for everybody in this movie. Yeah, like if you were a Barbie person, there was a lot of stuff in there. Like I didn't catch half of it, but I did see people pointing out, yeah, that was real, that was real. I had that. So and you know, good for them because I know I've done it for enough of these movies. Um, but uh, you even got a Justice League shout out, Chad. That people were upset about. That wasn't even that bad. They have no sense of humor. Just losers. But anyway, uh, I just kind of thought Michael Sarah was going to be there, like kind of like we had uh, some of the bigger names for Barbies that that show up. They're there for a little while, but they don't really do much. But Alan shows up, and he has like a you know a a something to do later in the movie. That was surprising, and. Uh, and when he popped up in the back of the car, I was like, oh, this is cool because it's Michael Sarah. I like Michael Sarah. And uh, I like what they were doing with the whole character, Alice. So it was fun. It was fun seeing him. And it was fun seeing him getting something more to do than I thought he was going to have done. Yeah. And and to have a plot point and to have real growth as a character and and to go on a journey and and be integral to the story. And that those were all really good things. I'm glad. He got that opportunity to do that. So what did you think of, uh, what do you think of Mattel and the decision uh, for Greta's, uh, Greta's agent to say, no, nah, we'll, we'll sign a sequel deal after it comes out? <laughs> um, I, un- like, I can understand, one, uh, Greta and her people betting on her and that movie. Um, that takes a lot of stones. Um, but that shows a, a great deal of confidence. So I applaud them for that. And they're about to reap the benefits of that. For Mattel, I can understand being hesitant because even though you have all these things working for you, um, like I I mean, this is by far the most successful movie Margaret Robbie has been in. Um, and while lots of people know her and she's been Harley Quinn and all that, those movies haven't been overwhelming successes. She, like she's become a bigger star, like in spite of those things. So I can see Mattel being like, you know, this could probably be a hit, but will we want to bring all these people back? Uh, this might be enough to set up us doing something else, but maybe not with these people. I understand them being hesitant. 
the the but the thing with the hesitancy is now you got to pay up. It, it it's you got to pay the piper tie. If you want to do this again, well, the price of the brick has gone up. That's what you get for doing that. But I'm 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 not mad at them. There probably is some Mattel exec saying, "I told y'all, I told y'all, this was gonna be gangbusters, and not and we wouldn't have to pay all this money, but now we got to do it." But I told y'all. But you know, it's it's you win some in that kind of situation, you lose some. I think they'll gladly, not gladly. I think they'll take it, considering how much this movie, not only how much the movie is made. I'm sure the merchandising is out the wazoo. I'm sure they're selling more Barbies now than they did like in recent history. So I think it's all working out for them. So here's my thing. We don't need a Magic 8-Ball movie. We don't need a Stretch Armstrong movie. Nope. We don't need a Hot Wheels movie. We don't need all of these Mattel Cinematic Universe type movies. Like, you can't really do a straight-up sequel to Barbie because this is the movie... That is about Rog Margie Mar- uh, Margaret Ro- uh, Margot Robbie's stereotypical Barbie. This is about her journey, and her journey has a definite beginning, middle, and end in this movie. If you want to continue making movies within Barbie world, there are other Barbie with other stories and other kids. If for that matter, if you wanted to go down that route, uh, you can even do a you know you can do a Michael Sarah centric movie if you wanted to. But you can't just bring Margot Robbie and, and Gosling back and just redo the whole thing again in, five, in three years. Like, it's not going to work because of what that story is. The other thing, too, is Greta signed to do, uh, to do Narnia for Netflix. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how passionate she is about which project she would want to put first. I don't know how much money Netflix gave her um, or what the terms and conditions of said contract were. But, like, you know, it's entirely possible that, like, that comes before any kind of Barbie uh, scene. So, it, it, to me, it's going to be interesting because you could do Ken movies, you do Barbie movies. I just, for the love of God, don't need a cinematic universe that includes John Cena as Stretch Armstrong. Yeah, the, the weekend this came out, the question was, were studios going to take the right lessons from the success of Barbie and Oppenheimer? And to date, it looks like they're changing all the wrong ones. That whole list of Mattel movies, yeah, you can probably get a few out of there. But like a Uno movie, um, I forget what other wild ones are up there. But I know we're in this in this place where IP is king, and I'm not knocking that because you know through time IP has always been factored into movies. Uh, I know a lot of people don't like to think about that, but. A lot of people's favorite, like favorite old movies, came from this thing we had before the internet and before uh, comics. It, they they use these things called books, just regular books, and lots of things come from regular books. There's uh, there's oh. something called Gone with the Wind. Yes, if you nowadays when people think of old Hollywood, and you say tell them to think of a movie, they'll say Gone with the Wind. They'll say The Wizard of Oz. Guess what? Both of those things have in common. They are both existing IP. Um, Zorro was big back in the day. You had uh, um, I just lost it, but um, hell, Star is Born has been remade three times, so that like there's an old nominated for Academy Awards every time, every time, but again, off of existing property. So that's the thing that's always happened. I don't want to, I know people like to say that, like, it's people like to think that it's 
a thing that's solely happening in this era and that that's all this era has to offer is if it's not off of something existing, then we can't figure it out because they have no original ideas. That's not the case. Um, really, it comes down to studios are very much risk averse. So they want something with a name that people already know. Uh, you don't have to like that. I don't love it, but there's always there's always been and there's always going to be existing properties that are translated to movies and other medium. You just gotta accept that. But with that, the the what the what the fear should be is that what Mattel's doing is like, okay, this is everything we have. We're gonna throw all this on the movies. No, it's what you want is for these studios to when they do existing properties, evaluate the properties they're looking at and then pick something that fits into a movie. Not only fits into there. not only fits into a movie, but is a is a underserved IP audience. Because the two biggest gross highest grossing movies of the year are Super Mario Brothers, uh-huh. which had not had a movie since the early nineties, and that was in such a disaster that Nintendo refused to ever make another live action movie ever again. So it was an underserved. They hadn't Mario fans and Nintendo fans hadn't had a movie set in their world for decades. And then Barbie has been has been in existence for sixty years. And you know, while she's had a bunch of animated movies, she's never had a live action. So that makes sense that there would be an underserved audience for that. I don't know what the underserved audience. Do you know of anybody who's yelling? screaming or demanding a stretch armstrong movie no i mean like you can make a stretch armstrong movie you can find a way to crack a story that would be interesting but it would essentially be a comic book movie because essentially they get gamma radiation or something and then you know get hired by the federal government to go do jobs while they can stretch their their limbs limitlessly um you could probably get blumhouse to do a decent uh magic eight ball movie that turns it into a horror that frames it in a horror setting but like a hot wheels movie does jj abrams really need to make a hot wheels movie like i don't know there's not a huge demand i don't feel for that especially when you've got other race car movies out there um i think this is just a unique moment in time with a unique property a a passionate star and a passionate director and this is the result and hopefully that's the the result that studio heads figure out although i'm not quite sure what they can figure out considering they basically went to the table last friday and pissed all over the writers and then got mad at the writers for not accepting uh, that is so fr- that whole thing is so frustrating um we're gonna bring you to the table just to curse you out and tell you how bad you are yeah it's uh we're, yeah and the debate within the the studio heads themselves about whether or not to even sit down last friday or not I can't see like I can't make myself see it from the studio has perspective because they are just so um, I don't that it's the money people. Most people don't like the money people. And when everything's laid out like it is, it, it makes the money people look like, you know, just outwardly greedy, penny pinching people that only care about. And and I think it's fair to say they only care about. The bottom line, because that's what their CEOs, that's what their jobs are. They only care about the bottom line of bringing in money. Their their job is not to make the content or oversee making good content like we would want them to do. No, their job is to oversee that the company is more profitable today than it was yesterday. And that's how that's supposed to go. 
Um, I've been saying for a while, I don't think that's a sustainable thing for anything, but that's the system we have right now. But with all that said, like, uh, I know that a few of them have had investor calls in the last few days, and they're all saying, like, how much, talking about how much money they've saved this quarter because of the strike. And yeah, that's all really good because for people that's supposed to be like have long term range, because that's how you keep this thing growing. When it comes to these things, it's such short short sighted because um, it's short sighted basically because you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yeah, you're you've saved 100 million or 200 million this quarter. Great for you, but that's because you have no product to sell. Like and. and, and yeah, and the way everything is set up, you have stuff in the can where you can you weather this quarter. However, you know, particularly for these the, the TV ones, um, they are they're going to have to move product from streaming services onto broadcast linear television because they don't have rev, they don't have product. And it, and it's going to be old product. It's just that people's already seen because uh, I saw it a few weeks ago. Some a, a guy that was a writer on uh, Law and Order, he's like. You know, we would have started working now for them to start shooting like around this time for you to start having the shows to come out in September because they'll show they shoot them. They start shooting about now in August and they're shooting until like November for like the first half of the season. So effect, but the writers start, I think, a month ahead of time. So like, let's say magically the strike ended today, tonight, and they went back to work tomorrow. That means they don't start shooting at the earliest until probably the end of September when you would have been a month into these shows. Like, even if they end this, if the strike ends sometime this year, you're not at like all these network TV shows, you're not getting any of those until next year. Movies. Yeah, that's the, the way the way that I keep explaining it is those, you know, Netflix, uh, Stranger Things season five was supposed to start shooting in June. There's a very real possibility they not may not be able to start shooting until next June, right? Because of the because of the writer strike, like right. you know. And then you it's a VFX heavy show, so it takes time to do post. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like you can just shoot it and put it out like a month later. Like they may do principal photography from like June to August, and the product not the move the show not be able to come out till like 2025. Yep. And, and and that's like so so that's what you have with TV like you're running it, it's you're running two months ahead to be where you know where the show where where the shows come out um, but and so for movies you know we shoot those a year out so anything that's supposed to come out next year should be shooting right now we're not having that but again they survived this quarter which is right there in front of them and they can they can talk about all the gains they've made and all that. But two quarters from now, when they have no new content um, and, you know, streaming services, when there's not new content, people tend to get off the network TV. I mean, they're going to try to fill it up with like junk stuff, but still they're going to they're not going to have people watching. That's going to affect their ad dollars because people aren't watching anything new. Um, Two quarters down the line, you're going to have you're going to be sitting there like, yeah, we had nothing new because we had the strike and the way businesses work. It's like. Why would you want to put yourself in that position? Because uh, as Bob Shapik, things can be great one day and then they can kick your ass out the next. And that's how it is for all of these CEOs. So if you're and supposed to be in so all of these, thinking, yeah, 
And then all right. these streaming services are reporting massive losses. Right, right. They were so, all supposed to be solvent by 2024, and none of them are anywhere close to profitability. I, I don't get it. I don't get it for, for such smart people. I know, you know, they're they're shaking people down. And I saw a report today about um, they're really thinking that they'll have advances in AI where they can do the things they want to do with AI in six months. So they're trying to wait out the, the writers and uh, wait out. They're waiting out the writers and waiting out um, for AI to make the necessary advancements where they can just use it. I don't know how true that is. But but if that's the case, I mean they're they're really just trying to destroy everything at that point to go the cheapest route possible. But that's 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 still well and good. But you're gonna have to answer a conference a uh, 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 investor call in a quarter or two and have to stand there and say we lost all this money because we had nothing to offer because we had a strike for three months. Yeah, and I think there's a very real possibility, as I think you do too, that we could get into the holiday season of 2023 without an agreement, which will will put a death nail in summer 2024. Yeah. Like it's going to be very hard to have any kind of product for the theaters for, for the summer of 2024, which will stagnate all of this new renewed energy and enthusiasm. Like we had four movies this weekend at the box office, make over $25 million, four movies. I personally went to the theater this weekend and had, Two sold out, a sold out screening of of uh, Oppenheimer, and a sold out screening of Barbie, both in four hundred seat auditorium. Three weeks into the release, you're gonna lose all that momentum. Come you know Christmas, if or, or come spring of next year, when March and April roll around, and you don't have product anymore for these theaters to show. I get it, man. I just don't. And even and even if you move, say Dune Chapter Two. Or you know some of the the marvels or some of these bigger things to the spring to kind of counteract that you lose the upfront advantage, you lose the advantage of having those profits in 2023, and you shift them to 2024, assuming that 2024 will be a better physical year anyway. I don't see how you can get that. I, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't think uh, I, it's, it boggles my mind really. Well, I mean because the idea is that in a, it, it is. The idea is that automation, in this case, artificial intelligence, can do what it's done to auto plant workers and that it can just replace people and replace manual labor. I mean, we've got a a McDonald's that is now fully functioning and working without people like they're all trying it. They're all trying to get to that point where they don't have to pay human beings because they can save on the labor because labor is inessential and people are inessential. And that's where we are, because it's when you get to late stage capitalism, you get to a point where profit is king. People are just a deterrent to profit making. Never mind what that would do to the economy of the state of California if you eliminate acting and writing. Not their problem, even though, you know, it's going to cut off their the they, they want to keep top line stars. How do you get top line stars if you don't have them starting from someplace? But, you know. Wait, uh, it's also goddamn depressing. Indeed. So in the spirit of the movie about the atomic bomb dropping, that's where we'll end this evening <laughs> with a giant depression bomb. Uh, but if you want to keep up with this podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at BCW Tiger Fan. At The Mets Theory. Thank you very much. And as yet another training camp comes, let us all sing the praises of the great and mighty Sanchez. 
as he leads the New York Jets in spirit to another NFL championship. You know what? I'm going to start pressing the button before that happens. Thank you very much, and have a pleasant evening.